So I don't know if you've noticed, um, as a viewer, as someone that watches movies and watches television, but documentaries have been on an all-time high. Uh, you know, streaming platforms like Netflix um, have made uh, docs and doc series uh, an event, um, a bigger event than they've ever been. And uh, growing up as a young kid, I remember documentarians like Era Morris that were that was sort of the cream of the crop. Uh, and honestly, he's basically laid the blueprint for almost every fucking Netflix show. You know, Chef's Table is Arrow Mars, essentially. Um, but uh, documentaries has been something that I haven't surprisingly haven't talked about on this show a lot. Um, I don't know if I've actually discussed it yet. Uh, and that was brought to my attention by you, the listener. I actually had uh, fans giving feedback on the show and they reached out and they were like, look, uh, I think we want some episodes on document documentaries, which is fine. Uh, I don't know if you guys know this, but I spent a lot of my early years as a filmmaker in the documentary world. Um, I started out as a cinematographer for documentaries. I worked um, with uh, one of my oldest clients, actually, and a good friend of mine, uh, Rudy Hippolyt, and uh, him and I both uh, did uh, two feature docs. We did one called Push Madison vs. Madison, which was about a high school basketball team and the conflict happening within that basketball team, rival gang members on the same team and, and the stress. It's, it's kind of like a Hoosiers gone wrong movie. Um, and that was a fascinating thing to shoot. And then we recently just did uh, a, a film called this ain't normal, which is on the hundred plus gangs in Boston. And we actually embedded ourselves with uh, gang members and went through that. But Rudy and I got our start together um, doing documentary work for Harvard. So Rudy has a full-time job at Harvard, and uh, uh, him and I uh, worked together on a platform called Harvard at Home, which I don't think exists anymore. But it was essentially documentaries for the investors or for the um, the people that threw money. There's a name for it. It's out of my fucking brain right now. Alumni. Thank you. For the alumni at Harvard. So we would make docs on stem cell research. We would do all sorts of really great stuff. Uh, and, and doing documentaries as a shooter is always a great exercise um, because it really sort of teaches you how to make the most with, with the least amount of gear. It teaches you how, uh, how to, uh, it helps build your instincts on human mo a movement and emotion, which I think is really important. Um, and uh, if you're an editor and you cut your stuff, and I've edited a bunch of my short doc pieces, um, it really teaches you storytelling. And the art of storytelling in the edit room because the difference between narrative and documentaries in my opinion is that narratives are written ahead of time and you spend all that time sort of developing every last detail every last line of dialogue uh, the structure is all put on the page before you start filming uh, and with documentaries is kind of the reverse you're doing all that in the edit room and you're building a movie based upon the footage that you were able to capture so same techniques used for both, just different mindsets used for both of them. Um, <clears throat> and so for today's show, I wanted to talk to somebody who blurs the line between both. Somebody who does and came up from a documentary background, very similar to what I did, um, but is also somebody that worked his way into the commercial world and was hired to do commercials based upon the look and the style and the vibe of his documentary work. Um, and then his transition and the transitions that he's attempting to make into the narrative feature film world um and the guest on our show was also 
another suggestion from a listener. I just have to stop for a second here and just say that I am very impressed with you. (laughs) I am very impressed with you guys that are listening to the show. You guys are getting back to me. You're sending me messages. You're giving me people that you want to have on the show. You're giving suggestions for folks that you want to hear me talk to. And this is my payment to you. This is it right here, man. You guys asked. I was asked to get director Ryan Booth on the show. And I listened. He's on today's episode. Very generous guy. He was very um, generous with his time and generous with a lot of important aspects of what he does as a director. Now, let's just caveat this whole thing. Anytime I have a guest on this show and we're giving advice, we're giving um, sort of the path of a filmmaker, that doesn't mean that this shit's going to work for you. This doesn't necessarily mean that this is going to be your path as a filmmaker. And that's the upsetting and awkward part about getting into this business is that there is no fucking guideline. There's no rule book. We've talked about it before. You just can't go like, okay, so I went to school and now I've PA'd for three months and now I should get hired. It doesn't exist that way. So the only thing that we can do for you, regardless of what other fucking film schools will tell you, the only thing that you can get out of this is learning from other people's mistakes, learning from other people's experiences. And more importantly, don't just focus on the specifics. Focus on how that person processed what they experienced to come to that conclusion. Does that make sense? I hope it does. So I just wanted to sort of caveat that thing because I at no point am ever going to say on this show, these are the steps that you got to do to become successful. I will give you insight into whatever the fuck it is that I do to try to survive and what these people that become, that come on the show do to try to survive. But we're all shifting, man. We're all shifting and we're all moving. And this shit changes so much. There's no such thing as stability. Uh, prior to COVID, it was a fucking mess. So after COVID, it's going to be even crazier. Um, and so we're all dealing with it. And the thing that I like about this episode, because I've already, I've already recorded it, Spoiler alert. (laughs) I've already nailed it down. I already know how good this episode is. I already know everything we talk about. And if you are in uh, listening to the show because you want to get more insight on how to be a better director, if you want to get more insight into how to get your career started, if you're fascinated about how documentaries happen, and if you're just a listener that watches shows like uh, 90 Day Fiance and fucking Kardashians, and you actually think that they're real shows, listen to this fucking show. This is the episode for you. I just want to yank that fucking curtain and just show you guys that, yes, you understand that those shows aren't real, but there's an extent to which they're not real. Uh, And if you understand the manipulation that goes into making films, especially documentary films, if you understand the manipulation that happens on a lot of current movies, then... You'll take a lot of the stuff that you see with a grain of salt, and then maybe you won't model your whole fucking life after these fucking people. You know what I mean? That's me being very cynical there. That's not what the show's about, but there's a lot of little tricks and there's a lot of little nuggets that you can pull for this. And then while watching those programs, understand how that stuff happened. Um, (laughs) Goddamn. Why is it so hard for me to stay positive sometimes? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe it's because I'm sweating sweating, and we're in lockdown 
And for those of you uh, who are suffering through the same lockdown, and by those of you, I mean every fucking person, um, I hope you're listening to our uh, COVID specials that we do every Friday, in which uh, we sort of talk about how we're processing going through the COVID environment, uh, what uh, is going on with finances, uh, giving you tips on how to get employment, giving you tips and uh, in- information into what we're discovering on how this shit actually works. Uh, every Friday happens at lovewiththeprocess.com. Go there, check it out. There I will have all those episodes put together, but you can also choose your episodes based upon the content that you're looking for because I know there's a lot of new listeners. I know we have a, a lot of Ryan Booth fans that are jumping on the show. Welcome. Get ready. Uh, I think you're going to love this show. Um, and I am happy that you're here. I, I consider you part of our club or part of our group on this. And uh, if you were like, fuck, Mike, this is like episode 81. Jesus Christ, how do I get started? Go to inlovewiththeprocess.com, listen to the first episode of the show, and then cherry pick what you want to listen to. I have it all split up based upon content. So inlovewiththeprocess.com, subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, whatever delivery system will give you an alert every time the show goes up. And we're consistent. I've been consistent for the past year. Every Tuesday is when the show comes up. Tuesday and then Friday. So... There you go. Um, so without further ado, you know the deal. Go find those noise-canceling headphones. Uh, side note, Gina's birthday just happened a few weeks ago, and I got her... By the way, Bose, you should probably sponsor me. Uh, I got her those really cool Bose buds, like the workout buds that go in your ears and they clip to the back of your shirt. Because uh, if you've noticed, uh, you haven't been hearing the sounds of yoga in the background. <laughs> You know, when buying a gift, every gift has two meanings. One is that I love you, and two is that I'm tired of hearing yoga. <laughs> so, uh, do what I told Gina to do and grab those noise canceling headphones. Find a nice, quiet place to relax. Maybe take some notes on this one. There's some stuff that you might find fascinating. Um, sit back, relax, and enjoy the brand new episode of In Love with the Process. Hey, Ryan, thanks for joining us on the show. How are you? Doing good. Thanks for having me. Uh, you're out in uh, New York, right? I am in New York. That's correct. Uh, how are you holding up in the, the supposedly the worst place in the country for the COVID shit? Ah, man. I mean, I think it's... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> ah, man. It's it's definitely... It's been really interesting because, um, you know, there, there's obviously... There's the kind of multiple you know, versions, everyone's kind of experiencing it in, in different ways. And, you know, for the frontline workers in the hospitals and everything, they're having a very different experience than those of us who are more or less just isolating at home. Um, and I can always, I can always tell when like friends or family of mine has been they've been watching the news because <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll just get like a string of texts like, Hey man, is everything okay? You know? Uh, and a lot, a lot of, texts from people who you know i haven't seen in a while or whatever and i'm just like have you been watching the news because uh i i know that that the um the kind of perception on on the news is that it's literally like a war zone and sure. and i know that like in the hospitals it's been it's been quite serious but um in a lot of ways like you know my experience has been very quiet um you know i think i think it was um 
yeah, I mean, everybody wears a mask, a, a mask now. And for the last two months, like everything that crosses my threshold, you know, of my, of my door gets sanitized. So it's definitely like, you know, things are not normal by any means, but, um, but it's been yeah. the most relaxing post-apocalyptic experience for most yes, of us. Yes, it is not. It's not exactly how everyone I think thought it was going to. Uh, how the world was going to end. That's for sure. <laughs> I got a bunch of nerdy prop guys that were super excited to pull out their road warrior outfits and uh, parade around in them. And, and <laughs> yeah. I think I, I think they're just kind of let down that most of us are just hanging out in uh, sweatpants and uh, pajamas all That's day. That's right. So. <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. Um, so excited to have you on the show, man. And um, it's actually fascinating because you were uh, a request from some of our listeners. Oh, really? Yeah, dude. Oh, that's so cool. You definitely have fans that listen to the show, and they had reached out, and they're like, "You should, you should contact Ryan." And I was like, "Nice, yeah, I probably should." That's awesome. Um, I've been following your work for a while, man. I think your stuff is fantastic. Um, and uh, I think what I'd love to talk about on this episode. Uh, you've done uh, quite a a bit of documentary work and music documentary work and like live performance stuff, um, and uh, my origins were in that world as well. Um, so I think there's a lot to talk about. I really haven't dove that deep uh, in the series yet into that. So if you're game, I'd love to sort of pick your brain. Sure, totally. Um, let's talk a little bit. I was going through uh, some of your films this morning and uh, five stars. By the way, let me just start out by saying that uh, for documentary pieces, your stuff are so beautifully. It's almost like this really gorgeous blend of narrative and doc. It's like sort of this narrative doc experience. Yeah. Is that an accurate way of sort of describing it? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, th- I think for me, um, you know, I think for a lot of us who kind of came up in or who got into filmmaking because the access to digital tools allowed us kind of mm-hmm. to begin shooting. Um, you know, I, th- I think it, it allowed us to begin to, I think, photograph things in an, in an interesting way. Um, yeah. you know, as we were kind of building the, the skill set and the tools around really, I think can the, the camera, um, and so, you know, for me, I've always been a very visual person. Photography was something that I kind of was dabbling in prior to getting into filmmaking. And so I've always kind of, um, um, yeah, experimented with, with kind of, um, you know, I, I mean, for me, I think I like to build around compositions and, and mm-hmm. I just looked at documentary work a lot of times and just was like, I don't feel super connected to it because, um, you know, it, it was not kind of traditional documentary work was not necessarily approached with a cinematic language, basically, um, you know, applying the kind of narrative filmmaking language or technique to documentary work was not necessarily, um, you know, uh, I think present, you know, before 15, 20 years ago. Now, of course there's amazing outliers, um, you know, that have been made over the years by any means, but I think, in general, documentaries seem to be quite journalistic and very like neutral from an observation standpoint or a you know a photographic standpoint. Um, and I've always felt like the line between narrative and documentary work is an interesting one to explore. You know, sometimes I land a little bit on the doc side, sometimes I land a little bit more on the narrative side. But I think that that line is is quite interesting. And mm-hmm. for whatever reason, I feel like that exploration, a lot of my peers are doing that. And and the common denominator is that we kind of 
all got into filmmaking once the digital tools allowed us to do so. Yeah, it was a big change. It was a big turning point because I'm kind of the same way. I I got out of film school back in 1999 and it was like the origins of, of digital and that at that point we were shooting with like Canon XL1s and the, right. some of the earlier stuff and we hadn't even really transitioned into shooting with prime lenses yet and, and DSLRs changed that marketplace and made it a lot more affordable and inexpensive to shoot stuff that looked cinematic. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I started my career uh, doing a lot of uh, corporate stuff. So yeah. I was trained by a couple of DPs on how to do basically corporate interview stuff. And that to me got really sort of, there's a formula around that. There's a formula mm -hmm. with like the over the, over the shoulder camera coverage, how you light those sequences, how those sequences play out. Maybe you get a little bit of B-roll, but it's heavily sort of weighted on the footage that you shoot for the interviews. Um, and of course, yeah. you, our generation and the work that you've done sort of has broken that mold where it, it almost becomes more of an emotional driven piece and, and almost like a, a, a moment experience, like an experience yeah. that happens in the moment. Right? No, totally. I mean, I think, I think that, that for me, especially in documentaries, um, I feel that I am the kind of conduit to, I mean, you're watching scenes. I put scenes in my documentaries that are very much aligned with how I felt about what was happening in front of my lens, you know? Mm. Um, and I, I am the kind of conduit for what happened or what was happening. And I think a lot of times how I describe it is that I'm not, I'm not documenting what's happening. I'm interpreting how I'm, how what's happening is making me feel. Um, mm. And so I think that's how I tend to approach. I am not like, uh, you know, I'm not a stickler for literal truth. Um, I'm, I'm a stickler for emotional truth for sure. And I think that that's, that's how I've kind of always approached, um, you know, my documentary work for sure. It's an interesting line to cross too, because mm -hmm. this is something mm -hmm. that I've like, I've shot, uh, documentaries as a cinematographer, a bunch of other directors, as well as doing my own. Um, and the line, I think the reason why I didn't sort of jump further into doing documentaries is that I found myself consistently blurring that line of like what is really happening and what is the reality of it and then what is being manufactured. And now I think we've hit this point where they start to label documentaries different things where it's just like they have narrative docs, they have um, totally reality content. Like what do they call that bullshit? Like, like whatever's on, uh, you know, the learning channel, all that crap. Yeah. I mean, just kind of straight up like reality TV, basically. Um, yeah. Yeah. More, more. Um, but even that, man, I mean, like I, when I, so when I got started, the first thing I did was I started DPing, um, you know, when I got, when I got into filmmaking, I, I spent the first five years of my kind of filmmaking career working as a DP before moving into directing. And so, um, you know, and at the very beginning I got hired to do like promos for reality TV shows. And the, these are very kind of traditional, like cable reality shows. Um, there were some VH1, some MTV stuff, but then like hmm. um, A&E, you know, T, uh, TLC, like I was shooting some of the promos for these actual reality shows. And so that meant I ended up on set of a lot of these reality shows. And like, it's as directed as any kind of, version yeah. of a documentary I've ever been a part of or, or ever directed myself. Um, it's just that there, the conceit is that this must just be happening and they kind of, it's, it's almost like they make it so shitty that it like, of course that's like, cause <laughs> life looks kind of shitty. So like, 
um, you know, their cameras just happen to be there. Whereas really they're just using the kind of like the limitations of the technology or the fact that the cameras don't look that amazing or they're not taking time to light things or, you know, mm. or whatever it may be. They're using that. That's their language. Like that's the language of those programs and those shows. And that's the like the contract that they have with the audience is we are going to like our suspension of disbelief is that we all think this is really happening like undirected. Um, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? And that, and that's totally fine. So for me, it never felt like a stretch to, you know, step into a documentary project and, um, and, and photograph it in a way that kind of elevated the moments or made them feel more scripted or cinematic or however you want to describe, you know, the, the way that, that those images and those scenes make you feel. I never felt like that was a, a line that I was concerned about because I had seen the kind of quote unquote reality stuff. And I'm like, <laughs> they're, they're making up as much as they're making up as much as anybody, you know, it's quite yeah. interesting. It's crazy, man. Like, um, years ago I was, uh, originally asked to, uh, shoot American chopper. And mm-hmm. I, I had, I had, to, I basically turned it down just because the hours that go into doing one of those television shows, they're basically beating the hell out of you. If you're a camera operator, it's really difficult um, but, um, my buddy went off to do it. I, one of my friends went off and, and did the show and he was talking about, um, it's, it, it is incredibly scripted and it's incredibly manipulated. It's incredibly, uh, manufactured as far as like the producers that are on set and that like is how certain arguments happen. And if you watch programs like the Kardashians, like they don't all decide to just sort of sit around the table one day and talk about bullshit. That's all completely manufactured by Sure. Uh, the the producers involved, and so I think the danger in sort of saying that that stuff is real when you are packaging in that way, you have younger audiences that watch that stuff and go, "That's what their real life is like." And you you know you almost wish that there was like <laughs> a class that was taught in at this point that was taught in school that said this is how these things work. Right. You know what I mean? Just because I think it is really sort of altered the perception that we have uh, on what is success and what are celebrities. And that has now translated down into like Instagram and how the people have perceived on Instagram and style making and all that kind of stuff. But it was interesting to watch the origins of that, especially younger when, um, what is it? uh, Burnham and Murray are the production company that did uh, real world. I think all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. For Um, sure. They were kind of the ones that MTV was kind of the ones that brought that stuff back. And uh, because that was originally based on an old PBS program called The Loud Family, if I remember right. correctly, um, which was shot more real than what the, the, the MTV stuff ended up being. Super interesting. Yeah. It's wild stuff, man. It's, and I guess I bring that stuff up because that is sort of the, the question and dilemma that I was confronting when I was doing doc stuff. Cause I had worked with a few uh, directors that were like, it's all about immersion. It's all about all that. And I said, yeah, but no matter what, even if you're shooting and you just happen to be there and you're just putting a camera in a room and you're not really interacting with everybody, you're still shaping a story when you put it into the edit. You're still right. at some point putting your, your take on, on a thing. So why not just embrace that and why not just call this something else, call it like a narrative doc or call it, give it a different name so that the audience understands that this just isn't a camera planted in a room. And then and play with that. And then I think the results of that are the kind of work that you do, which is like these really strong and powerful emotional moments. 
Yeah. And you're really sort of resonating with the energy that circles around these people that has affected you. And then how do I translate that energy with using my shots and sound design and everything else? Totally. Yeah. Um, it's beautiful, dude. I, I appreciate it. It's very, very gorgeous and very, very beautiful. I just, I, and I, I kind of got off on a tangent there, but I, I feel like it, it, it isn't often that folks sort of talk about the reality of documentaries and how yeah. documentaries are very much told uh, and manipulated in order to convey uh, a message or an emotion from the person that's making them. You know totally, I mean? man. Yeah, I, I mean, my favorite kind of description of filmmaking in general is that you're you're lying to tell the truth. You know, <laughs> <laughs> that's a great description. I love it, man. That's how I knew I didn't want. I like I knew I couldn't be a journalist. You know, because I was like, I I like in, intuitively, even when I'm like, if I were to tell you a story about something interesting that happened to me like i like without thinking about it i will minimize certain details i may rearrange mm-hmm. the timeline a little bit like i'll edit it for a better impact you know because like that that will make the story land and how it lands is how i felt like that's how that was my interpretation of the moment you know etc mm-hmm. etc the meaning is is true the impact is true but like I might fudge the details a little bit to kind of make sure that the thing that I'm trying to say is communicated as clearly as possible. And like, I absolutely do that in, in, in filmmaking for sure. And documentaries, I mean, I I think all of that to be caveated by like, you know, um, I mean, documentaries are a partnership with your, um, with your subject, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and I'm very, I'm, I'm not, making things up that don't exist. Um, but you know, the edit you're streamlining or compressing the timeline in the edit or, you know, just the very nature of like compressing someone's story into a, even a 20 minute piece, you know, um, I think is, is you're, you're making editorial decisions about what you want to amplify and what you want to minimize to kind of help tell that story. So I think, um, yeah, it's an interesting, it's an interesting process for sure. Well, yeah, let's get into the nitty gritty of it, um, because why the fuck not? And mm-hmm. let's sort of talk about uh, if you if you're gonna do a doc and you've decided on a subject, what is your approach initially? Like, how do you convince somebody to allow uh, you to sort of do? Because I assume that the way your stuff looks, it's more than you just sort of following them around with a camera. There's a lot of like pre sort of planned out sequences and stuff. Correct? There is. Yeah. I mean, I think I think. Um, you know, documentaries are made on access, you know? And so I think as long as your subject and, and the thing that I've, that I've learned, the the thing that I've learned is that access is a, um, like, it's not a fixed point. Like, so just because you have access at the beginning doesn't mean you will have the same access at the end of the, Mm. you know, the production process. And so it's something that needs to be constantly, I think, um, negotiated and I don't mean negotiate in, in any legal sense or any kind of intensity with any intensity, but more just like, I think I'm, I'm constantly checking in with my subjects. Like, are you still feeling comfortable about sharing this? Or it would be really great if we could have a scene 
like this, you know, or can I come with you when you go do this thing? And a lot of times like subjects will say like, no, nah, man, I'm not, I, don't, I really don't want to, I don't want that on camera. And I will typically push and try and find out what it, why they are saying no at any given moment um, to mm. something. And then if I kind of, if we kind of push a little bit past the like, are they just a little embarrassed or they're not sure if I'm going to, like if my presence is going to change what they're doing or, you know, whatever, I think um, then there's been a lot of times that it's just like, all right, like no problem, man. Like we won't, we won't film it. Um, and I think that that, that is like the, the tightrope walk of, of doc work is, is kind of maintaining access. And then also when you get told no, which will happen, um, how do you like, how do you basically move past that moment? Um, you know, cause sometimes people will say no at exactly the moment you want to be filming something. Um, yeah. and like, and that's okay. Like, that's just, I mean, it is their life. It's not scripted, you know? And so, um, and so I think it's trying to then interpret like, what are other scenes that could dance around that? What are, what is a moment that would like, what's a different angle that I could take if you know, that action or that experience or that moment is going to be critical to the story. Um, and then at some point you kind of have to just trust, like, you know, if I'm here long enough and I film enough that like, yes, it would have been nice and condensed in that certain sequence, but like, I'll be, you know, I, there, there will be other things that come up and like, um, you know, we'll be fine. No, no one scene in a documentary is make or break. I, I don't think, I don't believe. Um, not if you're kind of like, yeah. Anyway, uh, I know that's that's a bit a bit vague. I'm kind of dancing around. <laughs> I'm trying to think of like specific examples that aren't going to get me in trouble. But like, no, um, it's totally fine. It's but totally you know, fine. I think rolling rolling access is a rolling concept, um, and I think that access is the the kind of the real work of documentaries is maintaining, developing, maintaining, and kind of um, continuing to make your subjects feel comfortable in a way that would let me, um, you know, film certain sequences that it would be insane for me to just have walked off the street and, and film, you know? Yeah, um, for sure. For sure. I mean, access is a huge, huge thing, at least from my angle, it was always either some sort of access and then, you know, a curiosity or a thought that I had about a specific person and the subject material. And, and at that point, I would always sort of process something. Like if I heard about something that was a great piece, I'd be like, oh, fuck, this is how I feel about that. And that, that'd be really fascinating. And then I think the next challenge for me was always like, okay, how do I look at this without, go, without that preconceived thought? Like yeah. how do I look at what is actually happening uh, sans the opinion that I've created from the outside? Which yeah. I think was diff- it's, it's, I think it's imperative to start that way, but it's always a difficult way in, I think, too. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think for me, like curiosity is, is for sure my, my kind of primary engine. Um, you know, I think, um, you know, a lot of times like when I meet somebody or like there's kind of a moment, I mean, five star, for example, like the reason that that film happened was that there was a, there was a company, um, called Texags, which is like, uh, one of the biggest kind of college sports fan sites. Um, so they, they like you, you pay as, you know, a subscription per year and they have like 
every kind of analysis, podcast, video show, highlight breakdowns, like everything Texas A&M football and mm. Texas A&M basketball, all the sports, basically. They they like, um, it's like, it, you want to talk about Texas A&M sports, like Texas is a place to do it, right? So they have this very kind of like, and a huge part of what they do is recruiting analysis. So people who like are following along with who the like hot shit high school you know, player is and where they're considering going and all of that kind of stuff. Um, you know, not just Texas, but every major university has some version of, you know, a, a kind of like a, a fan site that's, that's following in the weeds for, you know, college sports fanatics. I am not a college sports fanatic. I don't care. I, I actually don't care about sports at all, which is hilarious because I basically make my living doing primarily sports commercials, uh, sports doc series and, <laughs> like sports work it's hilarious <laughs> but anyway um i i like i'm not a big fan but they asked me to come in and help them color grade something they had been working on a feature doc and they i came in to kind of consult on this project well it's a feature doc so there is huge render times you know when we would render out yeah. a, a version we we're sitting there for an hour while and we're just like talking and they're telling me about recruiting and like how crazy this world is and i was like my ears perked up i was like this is interesting like have you guys done any you know series work or short docs on recruiting and they basically were like no we not really like it's kind of hard to like basically it's hard for us to get access to high school players they're minors you know um and they're suspicious you know because we're a you know a texas a&m fan site basically and and so my producer and I basically were like, well, if you had a list of people, who would you want to make a doc about? You know, and they gave us a list of people and like we kind of reached out, we dug around a little bit. And and the, the person we ended up filming for five stars, Brandon Jones, who at the time was the the most heavily recruited strong safety in the nation. He had 41 full ride offers to colleges around the country. Crazy. Which is insane. And not just that, but like, um, you know, like the top, like it was all the big programs wanted him. And so, you know, he was getting Facebook messages and voicemails and emails and like calls from like, the coaches at all the big programs, you know, on a regular basis. And so we, we ended up reaching out to him and, and, and decided like his story was really fascinating because his dad had passed away a few years before, um, uh, um, unfortunately from an illness and, uh, but his dad had played D one college football as well. And Mm. he like now, you know, Brandon's living with his, his, his mom is a single mom of four boys taking care of everyone. They live in a small town in East Texas. And he's like, this is not just a, eh, where should I go to school? You know, it's like, what, where do I go to school that sets me up to make it to the NFL so I can take care of my family was his yeah. kind of like, you know, the, the, the equation for him. And like all of that just instantly was going like, all right, this is, you know, it's it's less about college recruiting and it's more about a young man having to make 
an an adult decision for the very first time. Like he's having, he is at the intersection of childhood and adulthood and it's all hinging on this one decision about where he's going to go to school. And he could not decide. He just could not decide where to go. He, the night before he declared he had not decided. And Hmm. so we knew that that would be um, a really fascinating kind of look at that transition from childhood to adulthood. Um, and that there was, there were emotional stakes and that like Brandon was an amazing guy and that we knew that like it was a time capsule for him as well. Um, and a really fascinating way to look at college recruiting, which is very statistics based, you know, everybody's like, who's the five star here? Oh, they're going here. It's like chips on a, on a, um, yeah, you know, on a checkerboard, like move this person here, move this person here. And it's like, no, no, man, like these are kids with full lives with fully like, you know, they are racked with, um, you know, anxiety and emotional weight in these decisions. This is not just like, oh, this person goes here, this person goes here. It's like not names on a whiteboard. You know what I mean? And so totally, totally. Yeah. All of that was like why that story was interesting to me. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's fascinating because I did a doc years ago on um, uh, Madison Park in Boston because I lived in uh, Boston at the time uh, on Madison Park basketball team, so high school basketball team. And we followed this coach around. It was very immersive. Um, and you're looking at this all took place in um, like uh, Dorchester and some of the rougher parts of uh, Boston. And this sports opportunity was ultimately the way out for these kids. Ultimately, sure. You know, and so they felt like that this was the only way that they can make this stuff happen. So all these decisions that were made and and whether or not they got put in during a game and whether or not they had the opportunity to shine at different points were all heavily, heavily weighted on this emotional and and physical stress that's put on them. It's it's fascinating. It's a fascinating uh, place to do docs because like, like you, I'm not a sports fan at all. I laugh cause I I've done two feature like sports docs and I'm like, I hate fucking basketball. <laughs> no, totally man. Yeah. So, you know, and, and it's weird when you get this access and you start to understand the true meaning behind these things, because all we're doing is sort of examining and we get to question people from behind the scenes and you're like, okay, you guys are like breeding race dogs at this point. Like it's a, it's a fascinating world, the professional sports world. Um, and how much money is made off of these kids that are in a rough scenario. So totally, man. Yeah. I mean, I, I would, (laughs) I could make an NCAA doc at some point at this point that would be quite an Mm -hmm. interesting conversation for sure. Oh, I bet. I bet, dude. I bet. It's fascinating. It is. All right. I hope you guys are uh, enjoying this conversation between me and Ryan. Um, and if you listen to the show often, then you know what this part is about. Say it with me. This is the moment that we give thanks and love to the men and women that support the show. Uh, more specifically, the sponsors. And I'm not just talking about um, you, the listener, because the listeners have been supporting the show. I have seen how many of you sign up for Audible. And I know that the new listeners that are like, man, this show's really great. How is Mike going to survive? Because he's not getting paid. Well, the best way to help me out is to sign up for our free trial at Audible, right? So if you haven't done so already, go to 
Uh, audible. Oh my God. What is the link again? It's audibletrial.com backslash in love with the process. We'll put the link below the episode. Um, or you can find it on loveoftheprocess.com backslash sponsors. You'll find links for any of the sponsor reads there. Um, but sign up for a 30 day free trial at Audible. And with that 30 day free trial, you get a free audiobook. You get access to all of Audible's content, amazing content that they have. You're going to get lost in it. You're going to have a bunch of books that you're listening to. Um, but if for some reason you got to cancel uh, before the 30 days are up so that you don't get charged, maybe you didn't get your fucking uh, unemployment check, right? And you're like, fuck, cost is killing me. Uh, cancel. We still get paid. doesn't matter to us. But you're probably not going to do it because you're going to like the service anyway. So best way to support the show, sign up for that free trial at Audible. The link is below. I also want to get into my good buddies, the boys over at Puget Systems. So Puget Systems build amazing PCs. I've, I cut all my stuff on Puget Systems. And for the past year, uh, five, six years, I've done that. Um, they make amazing PCs. And we now live in a world in which we don't have to be brand specific with our tools. Fucking finally. Uh, so I can build myself a customized PC that suits my needs. And believe it or not, there isn't like a one place fits all as far as hardware is concerned that works with software. Like if you're gonna build a banging After Effects machine, believe it or not, some of the prior graphics cards, not the newest graphics cards on the market work better. And the thing I love about Puget, the thing I love about my space is like, I live in a fucking dead end street. Why is there a giant, a giant transport truck going down our street? Where the fuck are you going? Anyway. Uh, the reason why I love Puget is that these guys benchmark test all this hardware. So if you've ever tried to build your own PC, you know what a fucking nightmare it is because you're like, okay, so what piece of, what type processor goes with this motherboard and will this RAM work with this processor and will this RAM work with Adobe? Like, what the fuck? Uh, Puget does all that benchmark testing with all that new hardware that is consistently coming out. So these guys will, will test everything. They'll post their information on the, t on the test that they do on their website. Uh, these guys like to help people build PCs. They're not just about making money. But if you want a package that shows up in a box that you can open and you can plug in and you can start cutting, uh, these guys build systems based upon the software that you're going to use. So you can go to their website, choose the software that you're using. They will suggest a baseline package. And here's the thing. They want to hear from you. So you can write to them and say, like, this is the specialty kind of machine that I'm doing. This is the kind of budget I'm working with. How do I get this stuff done? Now, the new news, which I've said on a few other episodes. See, the big issue that I've had is that I've got a lot of listeners on the show that are from Europe. I have a lot of listeners on the show from Germany. A big group of you guys are from the UK, Australia. Puget doesn't ship internationally. And that sucks, right? Whatever the fucking reason is, they can't ship internationally. But what they're doing now is they're offering up a service to those of you guys that want a Puget-level system, um, but you can't get one shipped to you. So what they're doing right now is they're doing this new thing called hardware consulting. We are pleased to announce that we are extending the same level of service that would normally be reserved for those pur purchasing workstations for Puget Systems to everybody worldwide. Maybe take a drink here, hold on. Oh my God, my voice. <clears throat> so starting at $500 per consultation, it's only $500. And I know you're sitting there going, oh, $500 and then I have to buy my computer? Well, you can buy a computer really cheaply if you're putting them together yourself. 
and you can cut out the guesswork by paying these guys $500 to consult you on how to build it. This service will give you the information you need to make informed decisions about the hardware you need for your workflow. Follow the link below and find out if this service is a good fit for you. So I'm going to put the link underneath the episode. Check it out. Go check out the hardware consulting. A really good deal from these guys. These guys build immaculate machines. My machine runs fucking flawlessly. Um, and I've been using it for so long. And I'm hoping to get a new one, actually, from these guys. Wink, wink, fellas. Um, so, yeah. Thanks for sponsoring the show, guys, as always. Also, uh, on our plate are our good friends over at Quasar Science. One of the best advancements in technology in the film industry has been lighting over the past five, eight years, whatever it's been. Lighting. Lighting is insane. The advent of LED technology, creating lights that can actually be shot by our cameras without flicker has been a big thing. Creating lights that actually run temperature-wise, as far as heat's concerned, a lot cooler on sets. Your sets aren't scorching hot for your actors and your talent. Um, And then they're very compact. They draw very low power. LED lighting is the way of the future. And sure, there are... I still use all sorts of different types of light. And I believe that specific lights give you, are used for specific emotions and specific colors. But what I love about LED stuff is that it runs the gamut for me. Like I'll use some of uh, Quasar's tubes as a soft, as a soft fill, as a soft source. I'll use them as hard edges. Uh, you can dial in any color of the rainbow on their uh, rainbow LEDs. Um, and then, uh, there's a bunch of really great options with these guys. So go check them out. And I know a lot of you guys are like, Mike, what lights do you have in your kit? You guys get really fucking geek specific about shit. What do I buy to be a filmmaker like you? Fuck off. But if you're looking to buy new gear, if you want to know what I have in my kit, uh, Quasar. And I only do reads for people that I like and that I use. So consider that. Uh, yeah, so those are the two reads for this episode. Am I forgetting anybody? No, we'll just stick with those guys. And as always, in lovewiththeprocess.com, best place to check out all of our sponsors on the show. And please click the links below because they're traceable links. And the more people that click the links, it proves to our sponsors that there's a reason for them to be around. You know what I'm saying? Full transparency here, guys. If you don't click the links, if you don't, every time you listen to the, here's the deal. Every time you listen to an episode, you can pay me back by clicking one of the links to the sponsors below. Just do it. Super easy. doesn't take a lot of time. And I appreciate it. Every time, guys. Um, so, yeah, that's the deal. Let's get back to the show. So, let's get back into some of the tech shit. Sure. When you... Um, when you shoot these things, is it just, is it you shooting? Do you have a small crew? Is it just you and a sound person? Like, how do you keep it small? So uh, on, yeah, so in some of this, this stock stuff, um, uh, yeah, I, I try and, I try and stay as small as possible. You know, I mean, the, the great thing is I got into directing, you know, a few years ago, but I was doing a lot of like DPing of doc work before yep. I kind of got into directing and, and had some really amazing opportunities. So I was shooting some, you know, I shot two features in 2015 doc features. Um, and so I, you know, in a lot of ways, the DP on a documentary is a co-director. 
Yeah, yeah, uh, for sure. Just because, sure. like, they're deciding, you know, how things are covered, what you're seeing, where the camera is looking. Like, they are the conduit for the audience. And in an in an environment in which things are happening in real time, the person operating the camera, in a lot of ways, is making directorial decisions. Um, mm-hmm. And so, I think for me, um, you know, when I got into directing, the first things that I did were a lot of doc specific work or doc style work. And so I typically DP my own docs um, mm-hmm. just because I find that's the best way for me to sketch as kind of things are unfolding or decisions that I'm making. It also lets me keep the crew even smaller. So typically on my doc projects, if I'm not doing a bunch of lighting, um, which I don't normally, but um, then a lot of times it's me, an AC a swing, uh, a sound person, and a producer. So five, five plus me, basically. No. Okay, um, that's not bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's not bad so at all. If you can fit in one car with all your gear and the the crew, I feel like that's that's the goal for for dock work. Um, which is yeah. which is interesting because I, I like have the I literally also have the opposite experience, which is you know I direct commercials that are you know eighty to a hundred people on the crew as well. So like, you know, I do have the like big machine, um, you know, version of directing and then this kind of like really tiny, the one car version of directing (laughs) as well, which is kind of fun to go back and forth between them. Yeah. And doc stuff is, I mean, from a shooting perspective, doc stuff, I always sort of equated it to like hunting. You always feel like you're a hunter and you're sort of putting together your package that works for, the scenario that you're going to be in because totally the, the unfortunate port part of about it is that as a film crew you are influencing what is happening around you dependent upon how large your stuff is dependent upon how much you're manipulating the scenario totally um very specifically i did a i did a doc a few years ago on uh the 125 different street gangs that uh, exist in boston oh, and wow. uh the director wanted to fully immerse himself with these different gangs and go do interviews with them out on the street while they're doing stuff. And the, the, the danger involved with that wasn't necessarily that these gangs were going to shoot us, but the, the danger was that a lot of these members were never brought into one, one location that often. Hmm. And so if word got out that we were bringing them together to film them, then they were, they were prime uh, material for drive-by shootings. Got it. And, so we had to deal with that thing, but I also had to deal with my poor crew where I had like uh, myself as a camera operator and I had uh, another, sometimes two other camera operators in these scenarios. And so I was intentionally designed the look of that shoot to be shot with all long lenses mm. uh, specifically so that I didn't have to put my camera operators in, in the line of fire so yep. that the camera operators could be further out. And then the result of that was that the piece ended up becoming a lot more relaxed um, because the guys sort of forgot that there were cameras on them, which for was sure. interesting. So no, for sure. I I I typically so my kind of go to dock setup is usually either an Amira or an Alexa Mini with a Fuji Cabrio nineteen to ninety. Oh, cool. Um, on an easy rig, um, you know. So I'm not. It's not small uh, by any means, but I've found that like um, being obtrusive or unobtrusive has very little to do with your gear and more to do with literally the energy you put out into the world. So like Mm -hmm. I have found that I can be quite invisible with a camera jammed in someone's face, 
versus someone else who's very nervous about, oh, should I be shooting this or not? Or should I be this close? And it's like all of that kind of like hesitancy. And I don't know. It like makes everybody go like, what, like, what the fuck is this guy doing? Like, why are you like, what are you doing, man? Whereas like, I've found that like, for me, if I'm very, I like, I walk very slowly. Like, um, I move very like deliberately when I'm, when I'm doing doc work, um, when I'm holding camera on a shot, I'm like a lot of times I'll hold a shot and then pull my head up and look to see where, what's happening around me, like start to anticipate what the motion or the movement is going to be. Is this person shifting their weight? Are they about to move looking around? What are they looking at? Like, and then also going, all right, if I needed another shot, what's my next composition? What's my next movement so that I can start to build three to five shot sequences without kind of like, um, disrupting or disturbing kind of the moment, you know? Um, And I've I've found that 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 has very little to do with kind of my gear or being too obtrusive or or whatever. Um, And I think because of that, (laughs) I've now been thinking like, could I like, I've been exploring like actually using smaller kind of more prosumer packages um, for doc work. I just, I just ran a, you know, a a 12 episode doc series um, and we shot the whole thing on, on Amira's. And at the end of the day, I'm like, not, not because of like us being too in the way, but more of just like, that's a heavy package. It's 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 just like, it's really hard to hold that camera for six or eight hours. And so, you know, I'm just thinking like, you know, maybe a C300, you know, with a, (laughs) with a zoom lens on it, uh, a little, you know, L series zoom or something like that would be completely fine and would make it so that my operators can hold shots for longer, you know, um, can, you know, I, I can get into a car, like get in and out of a car easier, you know, all of that. For sure. For sure. I've been yeah, thinking I, a lot about that for sure. It totally works. I've done a couple with C300s. I've done stuff with smaller ones. Like it totally works, man. And, and yeah. the, the quality on the, on the chips on a lot of this new stuff. Ah, that's it out, looks great, man. It all looks, it looks great. looks fucking fantastic. You really can't tell the difference. And especially if you're setting a tone with your visual style and you have yeah. a, a very specific visual style and tone. For sure. And Which has a lot to do initially. with time of day. And, yeah. you know, I, I click off lights when I walk into places. I, you know, I will move people in front of windows. Like I've for sure am like making kind of lighting decisions based on placement and, you know, schedule is, is how you begin to set the visual kind of tone for your film. It happens when you're planning your days, you know, uh, not, not just what light do I put up at, at what moment, you know? Yeah, 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 totally. And l- let me ask you this: um, Do you do your editing? Are you the primary editor, no. or do you work with the, you work with editors? Definitely not. <laughs> I am okay. like the world's slowest editor. Um, <laughs> I just like I like I find myself watching the footage like forever and becoming quite paralyzed at like the the endless kind of possibilities and interpretations of the moment. Oh my god, um, man! Yeah, it's totally. really, really like intimidating, but. No, an editor, um, a guy named Lucas Harger reached out to me, uh, gosh, five years ago now. Yeah. Four, uh, four, uh, five or six years ago, just sent me a random email through my website and was like, Hey man, I, I work full time at a post house and like, 
you know, if you have any side projects or personal projects, like I'd love to cut something for you. And, and, um, we ended up, uh, cutting like a little music pilot that I was working on together. And it was my first time to really work with an editor and it just like, it was incredible. Um, and, and he's continued to kind of develop and he's an amazing, amazing editor, especially in the doc side of things. Um, and so he and I, I work with him as, as often as possible, Um, and, you know, I worked with this really great kind of editorial team, um, at a production company or at a post house called somatic, um, Hmm. at, uh, for this, for the, the doc series that I just did. They were really, really amazing, um, hitting insane deadlines. We were, we had episodes coming out every two weeks while we were in production, um, still. So like we were only three weeks ahead of, of release at any given moment, um, which is insane. And especially for a doc series. Oh my God, dude. I mean, yeah, it would have been amazing to like, you know, (laughs) process what was happening, um, (laughs) and not just like react, but, but they, they were really, really incredible. I think, you know, docs as in the same way that a, a, you know, a DP is a co-director of a doc, the the right editor on a doc project is is truly the best decision you can make um um just because the editor is the one who's really i think um the first audience member who's interpreting what you're bringing to the table how you're shooting the moments how you're taking the moments in um you know i've i've i i think having an an editor involved is um for me is a, is a critical kind of step oh, in dude. documentary work for sure. It's imperative. I think yeah. a lot of people don't understand. And I've always said this, that the huge difference between narrative and doc for me, at least is that narrative, you spend most of your time in the beginning writing something mm-hmm. with docs. You spend all the time writing it in the edit room. hundred percent. And it's, uh, I think the difference between a narrative direct a narrative editor and a documentary editor is that, Uh, Not only does a documentary editor have to be like three or four times more uh, organized and more sort (laughs) of like, because you have like these rando fucking clips from all this different stuff everywhere. So the organization has to be 110%. And then they're also, they're also basically a co-writer, if not the writer of the piece, because they're they're sitting there and, and they're taking these different elements and I, for those of you that are listening to the show that aren't filmmakers and you guys be prepared because we'll pull the veil a little bit here on how this stuff actually works. Um, most doc stuff that you see on TV, when you see moments on like the Kardashians, that moment doesn't fucking exist. They're literally pulling reactionary shots from some other statement and they're pulling some sort of emotional response from other statement and they're building those moments with that in the edit. Um, you can completely manufacture um, emotional beats based upon what you're cutting between and yep. what kind of music you're using, and then how you're laying the audio underneath certain shots and how that stuff plays. So documentaries are 100% crafted in the edit room. And sure, we can plan, as directors, we can plan about stuff. You can create moments. You can create uh, and shoot really great sequences. Um, but you, if you're not the editor, and I can understand why you wouldn't be, because it takes so much fucking time. Mm. Um, but it, you definitely need to have a partnership with an editor that understands your voice as a director, understands your voice as a storyteller, and then we'll, we'll look at the footage and understand like this is what that person was attempting to do. 
totally. This, 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 this. Yeah, and and can interpret it and go like, look, I know what you're trying to do, and it's not there, so we're going to have to build it, you know, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. or like, you know, yeah, or or just like they can in- internalize, they can digest the intention, you know, and and something and find a different way to arrive at that kind of intended goal without because man a lot of times you put two clips the next together that you 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 know you're like all right we shot this it's going to be great you know um and then you put the clips together and it's just like it's flat it's not alive yet you know and so yeah it may be a, a, a moment of sound that's needed or it may be like you know put it, putting the timeline in a blender it may be who knows what but i do think that like the editor is is really the the, the kind of lead person who can help um i think begin to interpret intention and reality and, and figure out how to kind of merge those two in an interesting way. Um, and I think as a, as a side note, I think sound design for me in documentaries in particular is massive. Yeah. Like I, I, I do an enormous amount of exposition um, in my documentaries through sound design that we capture later. Um, so in five star, for instance, there's a whole sequence where Brandon is walking through the halls of his high school and he's going to class. Um, and like, there's an overhead announcement talking about a pep rally later. That Mm -hmm. announcement did not happen. That was created in post. Um, that's the post producer, like writing, uh, like speaking into a microphone (laughs) that (laughs) that we put over just because it was like, there wasn't. Like it was how I wanted to, I wanted to hang on the shot of Brandon walking through the hallway just so you could see like him. Like it was a moment to realize like Brandon's just a high school kid. Like when he plays his football games, he looks like a world-class athlete. But when he's like walking through high school, he's just like everybody else, you know? Um, And they've got like pep rallies and stupid science class and all the stuff that, you know, like he's a kid, man. He's still a kid. And so I didn't want to cut away from that moment, but it felt too long. It took away from the opportunity to kind of create an interesting transition into the pep rally moment where it's kind of the pep rallies where he begins to like, you know, put on the, the, the superhero outfit, you know what I mean? And so, Mm -hmm. um, so we needed to like do a bunch of sound work to make sure that that we under we were keying the audience into like this thing is building and like here's where we're going you know um, and that's that's filmmaking that, I mean it's that's all filmmaking man yeah it's that's totally. filmmaking a hundred percent and it's fascinating to listen to you say that stuff and I think that people are going to find it interesting to hear your stream of consciousness on that because we all reach that even in narrative stuff when I'm cutting my movies and narrative stuff you look at a sequence and you go man I really wish that I had this thing here in order to get me here. And it's, totally. it's what you're es- essentially doing is you're, you're reaching out and you're grabbing the audience by their hand and saying, come with me on this ride. And you're consistently trying to make sure that you still have them by the hand. And there yeah. are moments, natural moments that you shoot or natural things that happen that will cause them to slow or cause them to lose that suspension of disbelief. And um, you're just manipulating that in order totally. to, to contain it. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know why it is that people don't, I think, I, I find it that people are less likely to really deploy sound design in documentaries as a, as a kind of narrative technique or tool. Um, but man, like when, when doc, when doc directors kind of really lean into sound design, 
that's when I mean for me when I'm watching somebody else's doc work and I and I like either pick up on some of those expositional moments with sound or I'm thinking like that for sure didn't happen like that like I I love like finding people who are very kind of aggressive in their sound design yeah, um, yeah, yeah. just because it's a very it's it's a very interesting way to kind of move the needle I think in documentary work for sure and in filmmaking period I think in a lot filmmaking of people period yeah sound I, is like you know I mean I started as an audio engineer so I have a I have a particular love for sound um, mm-hmm. that I feel like I've kind of continued to have continued to work on you know throughout the course of of my career for sure uh so yeah man all this stuff is really really fucking good and let's talk a little bit about uh, so you started, you started as a sound engineer and yep. then you, you got into, you got access, you got into, uh, filmmaking, you started to make stuff on your own, started to do, um, yeah, I won a, I won a contest. That's how I got into filmmaking. <laughs> that's right. That's yeah. right. You won that contest at Sundance, right? It was like a, a, yeah, it was like a, um, it actually was like the first kind of branded content campaign that, that term didn't exist in 2010. Um, <laughs> but it was a partnership between Canon and Vimeo, uh, like a short film contest to market the 5d and they were aiming at still photographers who were interested in getting into filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Ray Advertising was the one who was running the campaign. It was a, but yeah, it was like a promotional campaign for the 5D. Um, and and yeah, I, I like entered this contest. It literally, I was exactly the demographic they were talking to, and I had like eight friends who were like, "You should, you should do this. Like, you like photography, you like film, like you should do this." And so, um, yeah, that's how I got into. To, to filmmake, I made a three minute short that won kind of a chapter of the contest. Yeah. And, and perfect timing for that stuff because then branded content became pretty totally much the good. hottest, the hottest fucking ticket. And so every major production company uh, out there, they were hunting us down because we were doing a lot of that stuff at that time. It, it was the hot, hot deal. Um, how long did it take you to uh, sign with a production company at that point? Um, well, so I, 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 so that was 2010 that I made the short, it came out 2011. And then from 2011 to 2015, I was just on my own. Um, and I, I DP'd basically. Um, I, I essentially was like, I can either go back to, I can like go to film school now, like grad, go to a grad program to like learn the mechanics of filmmaking. Cause you know, I was, I was brand new. I didn't really know. I had good instincts, but no kind of technique. And so mm-hmm. I knew that I, I, uh, either needed to go back to school or needed to just literally shoot as much as humanly possible. And I, I kind of, I think in retrospect knew that I was going to use DPing as, as my grad program. And so yeah. I spent the next few years DPing and got some great opportunities. You know, one, one thing leads to another. And, um, I ended up signing with an agent in 20 beginning of 2015. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then yeah, shot ended up shooting two doc features that year, tons of big commercials, um, which was really cool. And then in 2016 is when I kind of got a few opportunities to direct some smaller projects. Um, and so, um, throughout 2016, I kind of was doing both DP mm-hmm. and directing. Um, 
and uh, Pulse Films, uh, which is the commercial company I'm repped by now that I that I signed with, um, they reached out in 2016, and I directed some branded content projects off roster with them mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. for 2016, and then they offered me a roster spot in the spring of 2017. So I've been with them since. It's an interesting thing because I could do a whole fucking uh, episode on what it's like to be on a roster and, and what's you know. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, dude. Because it's a it's a it's a fascinating thing. Because as a younger filmmaker, for years, because we we were doing me and my business partner back in the day, we we're doing music videos, and that's where we were really sort of pulling our weight. Yeah. Um, but then we crossed into sort of the commercial territory because music video, being able to fucking survive as a music video director, oh my became, god, dude, it's insane. You can't, and so I don't get it. <laughs> I do because we knew because we had great access. My old business partner was in um, uh, an old hardcore band, so we had access to all these different groups, and that was that was important for us to be able to get in. Um, but I remember we talked to a bunch of the music video directors that we looked up to just because we had the access and. You know, I had spoke with like Mark Romanek and I had spoke with like Zach Merck and a bunch of these other guys that had done some really great stuff. And and they were just like, you guys are getting into the business now. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, dude. The, it's, bu- the wave the, the wave is passed. And the, yeah, the, the, yeah. Sure. They're like the budget for your video was what my take home was, you know. And totally, like, yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. So we ended up doing that jump into the commercial world as well. And then we ended up, uh, you know, when you're younger, you're like, I just got to get signed to a roster. I just got to get in with one of these production companies and then everything will change. Um, and it, <laughs> like so many things in this business, once you finally cross that threshold, you're just like, uh-huh, this is what it's really like now. I know. No, <laughs> totally, man. It's not, it is not a magic bullet by any means. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's not, I, it's not at all. <laughs> well, and then, you know, looking at, cause you know, I've checked out pulse in the past. And so you end up being, repped by a great company mm-hmm. um but their roster has a lot of other individuals that are pretty similar to the type of work that you do you guys just individually have your own different variations right so so then you're kind of competing internally for stuff which is interesting so some yeah i mean th- there's definitely like i think the thing that that um is interesting about kind of rosters is you want a certain amount of overlap, like what what Pulse has done, which has been great. I think you know, and, and the thing that made Pulse interesting to me is that um, they seem to be hard to nail down. You know, for sure, music DNA. Um, sure. I have music in my DNA as well. Like you know, what what we haven't talked about is kind of throughout both my DPing and directing career on the side. I've been creating performance videos for musicians, so. The first thing I did when I kind of won my contest and was like, ah, I think I want to be a filmmaker was I started a performance video project with a bunch of my friends called Serial Box. And I essentially would invite my friends, bands that, that were in bands, because I met I knew tons of musicians because of my recording studio days. And I would mm-hmm. have them come in. We'd set up studio microphones and shoot with four or five five Ds, this kind of multi-cam performance video thing. Make it sound like a record, make it look like a music video. That was kind of our goal. And it was just for fun. It was literally a way for me to convince my filmmaking friends to teach me how to light, to teach me how to move the camera, how to, you know, build an edit. And I would like, I'd interview the band and and we'd do portraits and I'd kind of released it all on this website. It was kind of a, it was a fun, like, kind of hobby side project basically. Well, that ironically was the engine of growth in my career for 
many years. Um, and one of the people, you know, after a few years, like I got called by Spotify to come start doing like music content documentaries for them, uh, oh, cool. Amazon music, um, uh, Vivo, like lots of kind of the, you know, music companies that create original content, like eventually came knocking. And so I've been doing that in parallel to kind of my, what I call my other career, the kind of DPing and even directing the kind of bigger project stuff. And so, um, so what was, uh, anyway, so that was a, a tangent, but um, I it's, think that, that what Pulse offered was, a, a, like we originally connected over music projects because I, you know, that's in their DNA, that's in my DNA, but I am not someone who tends to wait around for things. I just go make, and if, you know, hey, if there's a chance for us to link up and we feel like we can move forward, then amazing. But like in the absence of us waiting around, like I'm just going to go make a bunch of stuff. Um, smart. And so smart. I felt that Pulse, Pulse had that in their kind of ethos as well. They have an amazing film and TV department that they've been building. Um, they don't do just commercials. They don't just do music docs. They don't do just film and TV. They've got all this stuff that they do. And I really connected with that, you know? And so commercials, which is what I'm, I'm repped, you know, on their commercial roster. I don't do music videos with them. I just don't do music videos, period. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and so like on the commercial side, yes, there are some directors that, that like we have similar kind of overlap in a lot of ways, but so much about the commercial experience happens prior to getting on set. Um, yeah. It's how you treat, it's how you, you know, how you make your treatments. It's how you handle yourself and pitch, pitch on phone calls. Um, and then ultimately it's about a body of work and a body of experiences that you can bring to a certain project. Yes. So, um, and so for me, like what Pulse offered, because there was overlap, I got my first really big commercial campaign because the project basically came in for another director on mm-hmm. their roster. That director was pitching and then won the project, but then the the deliverable list kept growing. And so it got to a point where they're like, we may need to bring in a second unit director. And uh, the, the agency had used a bunch of my five-star uh, still like frame grabs as, as reference in their director deck and Pulse into it, like smartly was reached out to the agency. He was like, Hey, look, we just signed this guy. Um, and he's all over your director's brief. Like, would you like him? You know, we may use him as a second unit director on this. And they're like, Oh, that sounds amazing. Well, wow. second unit directing, which was just run out and grab some shots here and there to help us stitch this stuff together, turned into like, they ended up needing 15 spots to create 15 spots in this campaign. Jesus. And the other director, a director named Sam Pilling, who's an incredibly talented and accomplished commercial and music video director, he was basically focusing on five or six of the kind of highest end yeah you know spots in this campaign well it ended up that like me going to shoot some location stuff you know some scenics turned into like actually let's give ryan like eight or nine like spots to to direct and so that overlap because there was a kind of similarity of taste between sam and i allowed me the opportunity to and because pulse was is I think adventurous in their ways of putting these commercials together. It it gave me the, the opportunity because most commercial directors, 
you know, they find the kind of harsh reality of commercial directing is most agencies are risk averse because their clients demand a, a success a hundred percent of the time. And as we know, yeah. in any creative endeavor, it's impossible to be successful all the time. You got to fail to move forward yeah. sometimes. And so agencies can end up defaulting to a, like, uh, I can't give you a commercial until you've directed a commercial. You can't do a car commercial unless you've directed a car commercial. All How the time. How can I direct yeah. a car commercial if you won't take a risk, like if you won't take a chance on me? And so it's yeah. a very chicken and egg scenario in commercials a lot of times. And Pulse has they that overlap and their willingness to kind of experiment meant that I got a big campaign like you know, without having directed a big campaign and it worked out great. And I've directed nine campaigns for, for that agency since then, you know, that's great, dude. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. It's wild when you, I've talked about this on other episodes. It's wild when, uh, you're a director and you're sort of working on your own little creative stuff and you come from a world where you're essentially the one in charge and you're sort of building your, your, your real, and then you are introduced. I think the biggest eye-opening thing for me years ago when I was introduced to agency life was that <laughs> all that stuff is, is important because that's how you sell yourself. But then when you get into uh, the actual nitty-gritty of, of being a commercial director, it's a lot of the stuff that you haven't been practicing, which is oh yeah, you know, man. How do, you, how do you do, like you were saying before, how do you put your boards together? How do you do your treatment? I just literally, and it, the same thing even goes in film. I don't want to be too specific because I would get trouble, but... I'm in the process of doing a film right now, and I literally spent four days putting together a whole set of boards, like break, like like break my neck. Spent yep. like eight to ten hours just looking for fucking imagery, and yep. then putting these boards together that didn't even get used. <laughs> totally. So, it's, so it's this weird other side of directing that they that people really don't talk about. It's it's getting people. It is trying to get people to understand your process and trying to get people to understand what is in your brain. And there are all these stupid little tricks and techniques that you have to get real good at. Totally. Uh, in order to translate that stuff. And, and you know, I don't I don't find that to be um um I'm sorry, there's like super loud noises happening. Is it yeah, my end too. So okay. it's it's fine. Just go with it. Okay, <laughs> cool. Um yeah, no, I mean I th- I think like that it's easy for that to 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 feel like oh that's the reality of directing therefore i don't want to direct you know or it's not what i thought it was going to be i think for me like what i've found is it can all it's all an expression of like it it's all an expression of the job which is my job is to convince a bunch of different people at any given moment of an overall approach goal methodology and then to like assemble a team that is going to bring their own skills, experiences, history, uh, artistic endeavor to that, like, um, to that kind of overarching goal and, Mm -hmm. and turn them loose, like go for it. It's my job to make sure that like, it's all falling within the umbrella and we're creating, like, it's my job to make sure that the thing that we're making feels like it came from a singular place and that it's not just a bunch of disparate bits and pieces of people working in chaos, but like that job starts on the pitch, you know, like my, the, the, the treatment document that I'm creating when I'm pitching the the agency, like it should feel like the final product 
And my conversations on the phone with them are my way of beginning to um, let them know where I'm coming from, how I'm going to be approaching the project, how I'm going to be, how it's, what it's going to be like to deal with me when we come to creative differences because mm-hmm. that will 100% happen. How I will internalize your feedback and give you back something that is better than what you were hoping for. How I'll listen to notes. Um, and then ultimately, what my vision is for the project. Like the whole, the whole experience is in any moment of the filmmaking process. And for me, I like I can get frustrated with the treatment and pitching process from time to time. If I take my eye off the ball and realize that like my job, the directing job started already. The moment the boards hit my email, my job as a director has begun that by the time I get to set, like I should have, the ship should be mostly built, you know, now it's a matter of execution. And so I, I have found like when I can reorient my, self to re- to remember that that directing isn't standing on set and pointing that it's it it begins the second i get engaged on a project then i find the thing to be a much more um kind of enjoyable experience smart dude very smart very smart way to approach that because it's 100 percent true um not that yeah. it's not miserable from time to time. <laughs> I mean, like, <laughs> dude, I mean, the flip side is, is then like I, I start pitching and then I lose, you know? Oh and, God. Uh, yeah. You know? And so the, 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 I, I keep a stack, I print out every treatment I make on these commercials, which I pitch a lot out on a lot of commercials. I have them in my office, you know, just stacks of papers of, of my treatments that I did not win. Um, and I, I do that to remind myself of two things. Number one, like that it could feel like I've gone for three or four months without like having kind of made one of these big commercials and that I have not done anything. And then I look at my stack of paper and go, no, 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 these films are fully formed. I made them, I had to make them shot for shot in my head to be able to pitch on them. So like, and you know, in some like, um, you know, a parallel universe that commercial exists, you know, I made, I made it, <laughs> Sure, um, dude, dude. you know, like, so, and that's real work. And I think that like, it's really just a reminder to myself that like, yeah, the, 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 just because I didn't make it all the way to the being on set part doesn't mean that, you know, we didn't, that I haven't been directing, if that makes sense. <laughs> it's a good way to look at it. Cause I always find that, I always feel that way when it's tax season, when you sort of going through <laughs> and you're doing your taxes and you're just like, yeah, yeah. What the fuck did I do for like these four months? Oh, right. I did 40 treatments. Yeah, dude. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, man. and I got paid zero for that. So according to the right. accountant, I was right, right. I was unemployed. I wasn't right, working right. anything. <laughs> for sure. For sure. Uh, yeah, no, it's funny. It's And a lot of people don't realize that because they'll look at a director's career or if you go look at a director's IMDb and you're just like, where the fuck has this person been? And honestly... Uh, your um, your peers or the people that you work with and your clients often are thinking that way too, where it's like, where have you been? What have you been doing? And what, what's new and what's next? And you're always judged by your last piece of material. Totally. How, how good it was and where it's coming out. So it's this, it, it sounds like you're doing a good job keeping yourself sane because that's a huge aspect oh, of it. Yeah, Try, just trying. Like, it's definitely, I mean, I think for me, part of it is, is um, you know, I, I I like to keep, you know, seven to 10 irons in the fire of various kinds at any given moment, just because, 
yeah, if I if I sat around just waiting on commercial pitches all the time, I would like I'd be riding a really tough wave up and down. You know, it would be intense success and intense failure only. So I diffuse that by working on a bunch of other projects, you know. It's smart, man, because it's there was a couple of years where that was all I was doing was commercial stuff. And yep. I was just in that pitch world and and sure, there was some some great successes in there, but they're just greatly outweighed by passes and you know when you don't get a job it's not because you're i had to learn this when i was younger it's not because you're not good it's just because there are all these fucking elements that are well beyond your control um that sort of do that and i found that i had to i was doing mostly commercial stuff for at least two or three years and i was getting to such a dark place because of that that i had to just go like look i gotta break away and i gotta do some stuff on my own and i have to get back to directing and i have to get back into being on sets that I have control over just to remind myself that this is this is the reason why I'm doing this. This is what I love that, that I'm doing. And then in our business, it isn't, like you said before, there's no risk taking yeah. on, on, on any level, whether it's commercials or films or any of it. Music videos, I guess, there's a little bit more room for risks because there's no fucking money. And so you yeah. hit a point where you go like, you get what you get. Um, right. But... In general, you are consistently having to shoot stuff on your own first. You're consistently having to invest within yourself to prove that you can actually work in a specific realm uh, to sort of skirt around that risk aversion. 100%. Yeah, you know for sure, I mean? man. For sure. Uh, so, like, it's this weird balance for me, at least, where it's like I go to work, I go do a bunch of shit, and then I take some time and I do my own personal projects understanding that for the next three years after that, all the clients are going to be coming to me asking to, for a watered-down version of what I did on my own. That's 100% <laughs> true, man. I mean, like, Five Star, you know, was a huge... I mean, for the first two, two, uh, two and a half years, I, don't, I mean, you know, uh, that got referenced all the time, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so... And and the the clients that I worked for were representative. It was you know Nike, Adidas, ESPN, Fox Sports. You know what I mean? It was all sports work um, yeah. because I could prove that I could basically you know work with athletes in a short period of time and and deliver something that felt intentional. You know, mm-hmm. and I, I get it, man. I I totally get it. And so I think that's that's been the you know I I kind of talked maybe a year and a half ago kind of had a conversation with Pulse going like, hey, I'd love to try car work. Um, and not because I feel like car commercials are like the most amazing thing ever, but because I wanted to add to my skill set the ability to work with um, a bunch of new departments that I was not having the chance to work with. So stunt stunts, um, you know, working with uh, uh, either a Russian or pursuit arm, um, working with kind of, Equipment that meant I couldn't just, you know, grab a handheld camera and spray it down, see what happens, you know, that I would have to plan, be intentional. You know, um, I wanted to build some skill set that would be transferable to, you know, uh, a bigger movie set one day, basically. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, we kind of had conversations about strategy to do that. Should I go, you know, make a short film that has a car sequence in it? Um, Should I you know, what, what should I do? Cause how do we, how do we kind of uh, like take into account the chicken and an egg? Like, how am I going to get a car commercial? I've never done a car commercial before. And so, yeah. um, I think that's been 
fun to like have partners, you know, I mean, Pulse and in the commercial space, essentially Pulse is my manager. And then Pulse has their reps, you know, East Coast, West Coast, and Midwest reps who like are more like your agents, you know, Uh, the boards come to them and then Pulse and I will decide what, um, you know, is a good thing to do, why we should do something, how we do the strategy. So yeah, that, that took me a while to figure that out, that basically your production company is like a manager and the reps are like agents. Um, and so, yeah, but like, uh, this, uh, last summer, basically, um, a job came in, a car job came in, um, that came to the production company because it was a highly complex production job. Like, mm-hmm. um, and so, and the, the permitting, it was shooting at the Hoover Dam, which is apparently the second hardest place to, to shoot in the United States behind the Statue of Liberty. Um, <laughs> And it's precisely because there's five governmental agencies involved in the Hoover Dam. So if you start a take on one side of the Hoover Dam, you're in Arizona. If you come to the other side of the Hoover Dam, you're in Nevada. The state line is the middle of the dam. So that's two states so far. The dam itself is national forestry. The water is um, parks department and the airspace (laughs) is military. So if you want to shoot from one side to the next, um, you know, you, you have five agencies that need to approve like what you're doing. Oh my um, God. Oh my yeah. God. So, and it was very complicated. So they, the agency was basically like, we need to hire a production company and then out of their roster of directors, we'll find a director. But like the production company needs to start on this like ASAP basically. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. so I was pitching on other projects. I lost a bunch of treatments to, directors you've heard of. Um, and then, uh, and then pulse was like, look, Hey, this opportunity came in, the money's super low, but it's a very interesting and complicated job. Um, you know, do you want to jump on it? And I was like, absolutely. Let's go do it. And so I got a car in my reel, um, because of it. Nice. Um, So anyway, I don't remember the point of that, but I think that that like, yeah, it's just, I think, kind of staying flexible and, and, and not being frustrated by, you know, the inefficiencies of this. I mean, you can get pissed that like people are risk averse or you can like recognize that that's how it's going to happen and like get creative on figuring out how you can bypass the roadblocks that are up, you know? Totally, totally, totally. And it's smart to be that way. And, and I think that in general, I think that also you can have a moment where you get frustrated too, because like it's, it's both yeah. sides of the it's both sides <laughs> of the coin. Totally. And I think on I think on this show I try to talk about both, where um, you have to be creative and you have to understand that if you just get pissed off and frustrated and that's it, then you're done. Like then right. then you're done. Like if if yep. that's your only output on it, then you're finished. I like I said years of going through it and, and understanding the, this, the sense of rejection and, and sort of going through that process, you, you, be, you become accustomed to it where you're like, okay, so this is kind of how the system works and this is how it's going. And, and then as soon as you become accustomed to it, the system starts to change itself and the way you yeah. communicate with people starts <laughs> to change, starts to get a little bit. Literally while we're sitting here, I just had a, a creative director send me a two word text about nice. something. It's nice. just like, what the fuck? <laughs> get <laughs> get totally. to the email. Get to the email, dude. Um, totally. So, you know, it's okay to be frustrated and it's okay to have that initial response. But like you said before, and I completely agree with this, uh, your job as a director is to try to figure out how to wade your way through that stuff. 
Um, would you be that frustrated if you were on set with an actor? Would you would you interact with them the way that you're interacting with that person with your crew on set? You wouldn't. Right. No. So, um, you know, it's never on the resume. It's never on the job dis- the, the job description that you're directing your clients, but you ultimately are. <laughs> There's a level of you make, sort of maintaining a vibe. Totally. Uh, No, and I mean, at the end of the day, like, no matter how experienced your client is in marketing or, you know, um, no matter how many campaigns they've been a part of, whatever, like, they're not, they haven't chosen to be directors. Um, And so, like, at some point, it is my job to interpret the idea that they have. You know, at, 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 at some point, the agency hands me the idea, I take it in my hands, bring it to my chest and then run through the gauntlet of production, trying to protect that idea and Mm -hmm. offering my best interpretation of how we're going to make it through from like, uh, idea to final film, you know, that's my Mm -hmm. job. And Mm -hmm. sometimes that means I say, guys, I, I know what, I know what you like when I'm on pitches, every time I pitch with an agency, I ask the question, how do you define success in this project? Like when it's all over and we're in a bar getting a drink somewhere and the, the commercial comes on TV, like what is, what in that moment is the thing that's going to go, that's going to make you go like, dude, we nailed it. Yeah. Tell me, because when I'm running through the gauntlet of production and something gets in our way and I now have to solve a filmmaking problem, like as much as you guys want to help at that moment, there's not a lot you can do. It's my job to solve the filmmaking problem. Here's what I'm going to do, how I'm going to do it. But ultimately, like, you guys have to just, like, trust me uh, that, like, this is what I've chosen to spend my time doing and that my experience says this is what I think we need to do and how best to solve that problem, you know? And we can have a discussion about it for sure. But at some point, my expertise is, like, in this very small window of the project life cycle, it is my job to give you my opinion, you know? Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. that like, hopefully I've interpreted what you're wanting to do. I, I understand what you're trying to accomplish and I'm going to provide a filmmaking solution for how best to make sure that manifests in the final film. Um, You know, and I'll let you know. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Dude, what a, that's a great way to go into it too with uh, what defines success for you because then you understand. You understand what they're expecting e- even if they're not projecting what they're expecting, what they're expecting internally. Or yep. if they don't know, they're actually examining that. And totally. looking at that and going like, hmm. You know, I've, I've had people answer that question like on the first day of production. So like I asked them in treatment three weeks or four weeks earlier and then like they finally will come, they'll come to me like on day one and be like, this is, I, you know, I've been thinking about it and this is what I, I feel like the answer is. And I'm like, thank you very much. That's very helpful information. You know, <laughs> <laughs> let's go do it, man. You know, <laughs> dude, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. Well, let's see where are we at here. Uh, one sixteen. Okay. So we're, we're hitting our point. I'm just going to look at my notes real quick. Sure. Um, but everything's been fantastic, man. And I appreciate you sharing. Of course all this uh and i know our listeners especially since they asked for you to be on the show i know they're <laughs> super excited. um i think i almost hit everything i was going to ask you like um yeah let's get to the point this is the point of the show where um 
I usually ask, you've been giving so much advice, but I usually ask the, the uh, guest to give some sort of specific advice to a listener. And I would say, let's go back to the doc stuff. Um, mm. And if there are young documentary uh, directors that are, that are listening to this, what, knowing everything that you've been through, because you did that first piece and then you won the awards for that first piece and then you've, you've been immersed with like high school athletes, you've been immersed with all these different folks. What sort of advice would you give yourself on that first piece that you've now, what is the most essential thing that you've learned as a documentary director that if you went back and gave it to you as a younger person, uh, it would change your career? Hmm. It's a hard question. It is a hard question. I mean, I think before we get into any advice, I think the thing that's most helpful is that all advice is autobiographical. Mm-hmm. So all I can be doing is is basically I'm just talking to exactly like you're saying, I am talking to the younger version of myself whenever I give anybody any advice. <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, yeah, yeah. So but yeah, I mean I think I think for me, like the what's helpful is to think about to be very honest with where you are in your life, you know? Mm. So um and and that, you know, when you're younger the strength or advantage that you have is, is time. Um, you have, uh, most likely you have fewer responsibilities than you will five to 10 years in the future. Um, not always, but most likely. Um, and you also have more, even I think responsibility, like I I would say, don't rush the part where nobody's like waiting for you to make something I think Mm -hmm. is a, is a, like a really good, piece of advice that I feel like has consistently, uh, proven true. And I'm, I am in that place in terms of the features, like nobody gives a shit about what I'm going to make on the feature side. And so I'm really like, it's taken me a lot longer than I was hoping to make, you know, to direct my first feature. Mm -hmm. Um, but I feel like the advantage for me right now is like, nobody really cares what I do and nobody's like, Hey, where you been? you know? Um, and so I feel like I'm using that to my advantage. Um, and so I think for me on the doc side, the, the, what I would say to my, the younger version of myself would be, you know, um, the more you can experiment and the more you can spend time with people making films, um, you know, with subjects, with a doc, like spending time with the person is what will make it interesting and or compelling. And Mm -hmm. so, um, you know, I don't have the time now to spend, you know, with a doc subject that I did, you know, five years ago even. Um, and so I think that like being willing to really jump into the river and see where it takes you, I think is a huge part of, um, kind of making interesting doc work. It's great advice. That's great advice. And uh, dude, Thank you so much for sharing uh, your experiences, and it, we. It's the purpose of the show. It's a. Of course, we, we live in a in a world, especially as directors, where I feel like directors aren't sharing with each other enough because um, it's a, sort of like this competitive, coveted kind of thing. I think so. Yeah, I mean, and and I feel like people are very people develop kind of their way of doing things, and I think that you know the 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 thing to that that the trap is to start to think that the const- 
the constructs of how you make films is somehow the thing that sets you apart. Um, I mean, I, I fully believe like if you drop me into a scenario, if you drop you into a scenario and six other directors, you would have eight very distinct films, you Mm -hmm. know, um, out of the, with the same, even if we, if, even if we worked with the same DP, the same production staff, like I'm going to make decisions differently than everyone else. And so I think the process part of things, um, people I think can get confused that they think that their process is what determines the outcome of the film. And they fail to remember that like, (laughs) it's the brain behind the process that is making (laughs) it distinct you know? Yes, for sure, man. I always and say so that who cares? Who cares if I tell you how I make stuff? Like it's, it's like you, you thank God you would never make anything like me. And why would you want to, you know? Yeah. 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 I always say that the thing that the clients buy is that little pink flesh that sits between your ears. It's hundred percent. It's, it's essentially yep, it's 100% it. all those true. life experiences, that filter that you've, yep. that you've created. Um, for sure. Fuck yeah, man. Uh, <laughs> Well, thank you, dude. Thanks for being on the show. Is there anything that you want to plug specifically? No, man. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's like, it's a really, yeah, it's a really interesting time. I think, um, you know, uh, yeah, I I think, uh, no, I'm just very, I'm very fascinated to kind of see how filmmaking is going to shift, you know, throughout the course of this, um, for sure. And I think, you know, the, the irons I have in the fire now are very different looking than, than they were, you know, two months ago for sure. So, um, yeah, it's going to be fascinating. I mean, every person that I've talked to on the show since we've been in lockdown has been saying the same thing, regardless of stature. And so I, you're, you're now at this point where I think where did I hear it was like a stand up comedian thing that I heard recently where they were saying how difficult it's going to be for stand-up comedy because all of the greats are going to come back and go, yeah, fuck it, I'll play the clubs. <laughs> totally. And so, no, for sure. Everything, yeah, there'll be a de- kind of a, a depression, uh, basically, of of uh, of scale for sure. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I look. I was I was in I was fundraising for um, a feature. Um, we were we were literally supposed to be kind of prepping and then shooting a feature now end of may was when we were when we were hoping to go and so that's mm-hmm. kind of gotten pushed off um and yet like and, and it's a music film it's a, a story about a musician and uh, out on this kind of small tour um and i think that you know what's been really exciting about that is that um i do think that the appetite for content is not going to go away by yeah. any means no, um, not at all. Yeah. and i think what's what's true is that things that are made with smaller crews more efficiently, um, basically, um, are going to be, are going to come back first. Um, and so what we're doing right now is trying to figure out like how small of a crew can we make this film with, you know, literally, can I make it with a five or six person crew? And, you know, my cast is not too big and, and can we like figure out a way to make it like later this summer when I think there's going to be a window um, yeah, you know, sure. to, to, to try and get something in the can. And so it's been exciting, I think, to like to recognize that the way that I came up, you know, um, from one man band to small doc crew stuff, um, that 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 skill set and that kind of um, approach, I think, is is more relevant now than it ever has been. I think, you know, for all the guys who kind of were hoping, um, you know, 
hoping to get to the point where they're on set directing, you know, 100 person crews for big commercials and stuff. It's like, man, I think really they're like people are the, the kind of the people came up and in, in small crew stuff are going to be at a serious advantage, um, you know, over the next 18 months to two years as people try and figure out like how to make stuff. So. Um, so yeah, we'll see. We'll see. I'm, I'm, uh, we were raising money on, on a platform called we, we which is a like a crowd okay. equity platform. Have you heard of it? I've heard bits and pieces. I haven't okay, quite so, heard of it. Yet. Um, Jim Cummings is another, uh, a filmmaker who, um, is a very kind of like, um, he's made quite a few features and it's a really interesting crowd. It's crowdfunding, but it's not like Kickstarter where you're basically donating to somebody's project. It's literally like investment in the film. Um, and so oh, do you get like a return, you get a return yeah, on yeah. your investment. You get a, oh. yeah, you get a return on your investment. You get a percentage of the film like forever oh. basically. Um, which is a really like a really cool, I think it's a really cool way to do it, especially for like, for me, where I've been talking about this film kind of to my audience online for quite some time. A lot of people have, they, you know, I made a short and then I've, I've been very open about the different drafts of the script and versioning kind of the versioning that's happened over the last few years. And so, um, so anyway, so we'll see. I'm, I, th- I think, um, you know, that's, that's kind of the thing that I'm spending my time on now is like, how can I get, um, you know, a micro budget feature in the can in the next few months. We'll see what happens. So what an episode. Am I right? It's a good one. I've been trying to get some good episodes going for you guys. And I know I've I like to play around and I like to go into different topics that uh, find uh, that I find fascinating, whether it's, you know, barbecue or food or talking to porn stars. But at the end of the day, I always try to rope it back around for those filmmakers that listen to the show to give you some of that quality fucking content that I have been promising and that you guys have been desperately needing. And so that's what today's show has been about. That's what the past few episodes have been about is really the the, the real life behind what it's like to be a director the real life of what it's like to be behind wow fuck jesus christ i couldn't get that one out Whew! it's too hot guys i have sweat running down my face right now um giving you guys access to what it's really like to be working in this business for real i mean without the instagram filters without all that bullshit this is what it's really like and so i hope you guys are finding it interesting i hope you guys are finding it fascinating uh, please go check out all of Ryan's stuff. I know you're going to follow him, and I know you're going to want to see his feature when he finally makes it. Uh, his work is just very, very inspiring. So definitely check him out. We'll post all the links below the episode to his Instagram, to his actual website, all that stuff. And let's just take a moment to thank Liam uh, for doing all of the hard work on the show. He spends countless hours editing and processing the show, uh, creating those little promo graphics that you see on Instagram. So, you know, show him some love. He's got a little Instagram link below. Just send him a note. Tell him if it, uh, you like this episode. Tell him that he's done a good job. Because, you know, it's important to let him know that uh, he's doing okay work. Because I never do. <laughs> uh, you're still working to impress me, Liam. So keep at it, buddy. Um, and uh, as always, thanks to Code Electro because we continue to use his music. Uh, on the show to make the show an interesting and fun experience 
And uh, Code Electro, you continue to be the man. All right? You continue to be fucking, fucking great. So, yeah. And uh, as far as, like, uh, what's going on with me, I mean, I'm recording this episode a few weeks before it comes out, so I can only tell you where I am at the moment. Things are good. I am deep in prep for a movie that uh, hopefully is going to happen. We're going to try to go out and make that stuff happen in the next week or so. Um, So maybe by the time you're listening to this, I've got some good news. Maybe by the time you listen to this, I bought myself a shotgun. Who knows? We'll see. We'll see what happens. Um, But uh, I've been trying to stay positive, trying to stay creative, trying to uh, make as much as I possibly can in this period of time. And I implore and I employ that you guys do the same thing. I use that word right. Man. God damn it. Oh, I'm losing it, guys. I'm fucking losing it. <laughs> anyway, thanks for listening to the show, and I will see you next Tuesday.